Few things make suffering as hard as the realization that it shouldn't have been this way. I know in my deepest moments of anguish, that was the thought that was in my head. It shouldn't have been this way. Maybe you're thinking, God, I've been trying to seek you, so why is this going wrong? Maybe you process through all the steps you've taken and you think, I've done everything right, so why is everything so wrong? When we try to seek God and make the right decisions and hardship still hits, we're left saying, it shouldn't have been this way. And yet it is. So what do we do with that? What do we do when our commitment to God and our best efforts don't seem to fix the situation, don't seem to protect us from suffering? How do we find peace when what shouldn't have happened does? And how do we learn to trust that God may know better than us what should happen? I appreciate this conversation with Daryl. Daryl worked hard to be a good father. So when things with his son Chase got really rough, it was easy for him to say, it shouldn't have been this way. And yet now, he knows the power and goodness of God even in the midst of suffering that he's had to endure. And if you feel like things are happening that shouldn't, maybe God is up to abundantly more for you as well. You're listening to episode 152 of the Where Did You See God podcast. Father God, I just want to thank you that you are God and you are good. And I thank you for the way that you brought Daryl and I together, even when there were things happening that could have kept us from recording. You've brought us here to this space. And so we want to give it back to you. We want to pray that anything that we're coming to the table with, we release that and trust all of it to you. Our thoughts, our words, our questions, our hopes, we give it all to you and we pray that you would guide this time so that it's honoring and glorifying to you, but also just reveals more of who you are and your love. So we give it to you. We thank you for what you are going to do. And we just look forward to experiencing you in a new way. All this we pray in most holy and precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, Daryl, I am excited for the opportunity for us to talk. And here's what's interesting about our conversation. I was actually about to end the series. Mm-hmm. I had the finale recording ready to edit. And there is this day earlier this week that I was prompted with the question of, do I do that or do I keep it going? And I wrestled and then I felt a peace about going forward and Right around that time, you had set a time and I'm like, all right, it's official. We've got an official time. So this is happening. And so I'm excited because I don't know what God is going to do. Because when something doesn't stop, it's almost like God's saying, oh, no, 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 there's a little more we're going to squeeze out of this. So I'm excited for our conversation. But before we jump in, for somebody who's listening, what would you want them to know about who you are as we start this conversation? Mm. Definitely, you know, would want them to know that I'm a Christian. I love God and was raised by godly parents who uh, instilled a lot of values into me. And I love people and I love helping people. (laughs) I just look for opportunities. You know, I don't really have to look too hard. Uh, They seem to just come to me and God just puts us together and it works out. Man, I've met a lot of great people in that way. You and I are connecting because I'm in the midst of this season focused on sitting and suffering those times when God doesn't remove the hardship and we learn to trust him in the midst. And I know just a little bit about your story and there's definitely hardships. As you've been thinking about this conversation, what's God been bringing to your heart? Mm. Man, (laughs) when you talk about hardship, I think back on my earlier years, 
I didn't really know what hardship was. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, I really had it pretty good. I really had it pretty easy. And I would tell people that if you find yourself in that place, know that it's probably not always going to stay that way. Yeah. The thing about hardship is that it molds you and it has the potential if you will allow God to work in your life to make you a stronger person and mold you into a better person, a more godly person that's better equipped to do the things that he's put you here to do. Yeah. (laughs) I really like what you said that when you were younger, you didn't know what hardship Mm -hmm. was because when we're younger, we think we do. Like my young kids think they know what hardship is. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, you are losing your mind because you didn't get to dessert you wanted. You have no idea what hardship Mm -hmm. is. And so tell me a little bit about that point in your life when suddenly you came to know Mm -hmm. what hardship really is. Well, there have been several pivotal points in my life, but certainly none more pivotal than when I lost my oldest son in a drug-impaired wreck in 2014. I can look back on the other events that really shaped me and sort of prepared me a little bit for what was to come, but nothing came close to that. Just devastating, devastating to lose a child, you know, that you've raised. And he was 20 years old when he died. Really struggled for about a year and a half with addiction. Not something that I was familiar with because there was none of that in my immediate family. And I'd never experienced that before. So really caught me off guard. The loss of a child Mm. is a heavy thing in general. Mm. But what you've just noted on is it's not just the loss of the child, but it was drug induced. And Mm. so I imagine there's this feeling of it's a loss that shouldn't have had to Mm. have happened. Mm. But then that loss was also preceded by a whole other level of hardship of walking with him through this thing that like you noted, you had no knowledge base for. So yeah, Daryl, tell me the story of you walking with your son and it getting to this hard moment and how you have navigated that since him. Well, you know, he was always a really good kid growing up, quiet, easygoing, you know, and we were a church-going family. He was saved when he was probably about seven years old, and I believe that experience was authentic based on, you know, the information I have. We spent a lot of time together as father and son, doing a lot of things together. I spent a lot of time with him. He was a good athlete, small, but fast and great hand-eye coordination and picked up on things quickly in terms of athletics. We'd spend a lot of time, you know, just throwing the ball around and kicking the ball around. You know, it started off with t-ball and then soccer and baseball and then eventually track and field and football and played football in high school and went to college on a football scholarship division to level school. Both of my boys became Eagle Scouts. We spent a lot of time in the outdoors together mm-hmm. and just developed a close bond. I tell people sometimes that, you know, we got past the terrible twos, a little bit past that, and it seemed like things smoothed out. And I thought, man, I think I got this parenting thing figured out. And then then the teenage years came along. Mm -hmm. Man, uh, all of a sudden, uh, really, when he was in the 10th grade, about the middle of the 10th grade, he began having some issues for the first time. Now he was failing a class and his grades were just plummeting. And what's going on with him? And You know, I caught him in some lies, you know, always been really truthful about everything. And he was becoming rebellious and I had never seen that before. And he was diagnosed ADHD on the spectrum. I would say I've seen a lot more severe cases. He was definitely near the bottom end of that spectrum, but I have a military background and I felt like the discipline and structured environment that a military school would offer would be good for him. 
So he transferred middle of his junior year to that military school, and he did bring his grades up there. He ran into some more behavior issues while he was there. Mm -hmm. Some really funny stories there, too, but improved his grades a lot and overall was doing a lot better and had an outstanding senior year of football there. And things seemed like they were turning around, but then he got to college and it seemed like right away, you know, almost right away, he began hanging out with a crowd that was abusing drugs and alcohol and by the second semester of his freshman year, you know, the wheels just came off. He dropped out. He came back home and it just spiraled out of control from there. You're having to navigate this as a father now. Mm. And you're sitting with this feeling of things seem so good when he was younger. And I thought I was doing a good job at parenting and I'm trying to make the right decisions. And it seems like not only are things not working, but it's getting worse. And so now he's home, mm. right? You're carrying all this. And you have no framework for how to get him out of it. So how did you navigate that space? Not very well. <laughs> uh, I wrote a book about this experience and I look back now and the book has done well. And I think it resonates with a lot of people because when I wrote it, it was right on the heels of his death. And I was an angry father, you know, I was angry with just life in general. I was never angry with God, but I was angry with him that he'd made some of the mistakes he'd made or some of the choices he'd made. I was angry at myself. Why didn't I see this coming and why didn't I do a better job? I was angry at the young lady who was driving the car the day that he died. I was angry at the, all the people who I felt were a bad influence. You know, I was doing some really, uh, I was spying on him, you know, and I was gathering information and I was doing all of it in an effort to protect him, you know, to try to find out what the truth was, what was really going on so that I could take some corrective action. But I really, I, I overstepped the bounds, you know, the privacy there. I should have been more open with him mm -hmm. because by this time he was 18, 19, mm -hmm. something that parents can learn here. First of all, I would tell parents Delay as long as you can, allowing your child to have access to electronics, particularly when it comes to online access. Delay that as long as you can. And when it comes to the point where you need to let them have some of those things or you feel like you need to, get a contract. There's some online and you can modify those to suit your needs, but have a written contract and have them sign the contract. And you get to lay out what the terms of the use of that item are. And if they breach the contract, then there's no arguing. There's no fussing or fighting. You just say, look, we had an agreement and you broke the agreement. So then you impose whatever restrictions you need to for whatever time. And I think that's a good way to control it. Once you get to the point where I was, it's not right to sneak and snoop and do those sorts of things. Mm. And I can be really good at doing that kind of thing. You know, I do have the military background. I can dig up information if I need to. I can find things out. Yeah. I've learned that sometimes I'd rather not know. Mm. And so I've gotten a lot better over the years of just, okay, I'm just going to let that dog lie over there. I'm not going to bother it. You know, I'm just going to go with what God leads me to look at there in terms of what's going on. But some information is, like I said, you know, um, ignorance is bliss, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I definitely overstepped my bounds there. I made some good decisions. Once he dropped out of college and came back home, he immediately gravitated to a rough crowd. He was not following our house rules, which were pretty simple. It's like, look, I'll help you. If you decide you want to go to a community college, college is not for everybody. You want to go to a community college, I'll help you pay for that so that you can learn a trade. There's always the military. There's all kinds of other options, but 
you know, you need to try to do something to move yourself in a positive direction. And he just wasn't doing that. And my wife, one of her rules was if you're living with us and you're staying in our home, if you're going to be gone overnight, then you need to communicate with us and let us know you're going to be gone overnight and give us some idea of where you are, when we can expect you back. But he wouldn't do that. And he'd be gone for days at a time. And he was staying out, you know, longer and longer. And I knew what was going on. Eventually, he showed up one day at the front door. A friend had dropped him off. They were still in their car waiting on him. And he came to the door and I wouldn't let him in because he'd been gone for three or four days without communicating with us. And I felt like to let him in at that point would be to continue to enable his self-destructive behavior. And that was really tough. You know, it was hard to watch him get back in that car and drive off and not know when I might ever see him again. I kept up with him online. He was losing weight rapidly and pale, glassy-eyed. And so I came to a point where I decided the the word intervention kind of popped into my head. I'd come across the show a couple of times on TV. I never had really watched enough. Mm -hmm. You know, I knew what it was. I knew what an intervention was. So I started to do some searches for interventions and hired somebody to come to our house to help conduct an intervention for Chase. And we got together a group of family and friends and we did it. And it was effective at getting him into treatment. You know, in hindsight, I look at that and I go, that was a good decision. And it did get him into treatment and he improved. It took some time, but he improved and he came back home and everybody felt, you know, we had the old Chase back. But I felt when he moved back home, First of all, that was the first mistake I made, in my opinion, in hindsight. Now, looking back, is that I let him move back in the house. By this time, he's 20 years old. He needed to be out on his own. Moving him back in here, in some respects, we were enabling him. And that was all on me. You know, I'll take the blame for that. That's something I coach parents on now. It's like, look, if you find yourself in that situation while your child is in treatment, That's a great time for you to do a lot of study and try to learn about addiction and to prepare yourself for your proper role as a parent in that situation, in the recovery of your child. And you need to learn how to back off more and allow them to make some decisions, even when you know there are going to be consequences so that they can learn from those. If you're always protecting and always rescuing, they don't have that opportunity to learn. That's tough to tell a parent because it's really scary because there's a steep learning curve there. And sometimes the consequences can be deadly. Mm -hmm. Some things I did good and some things not so good. I think most parents in this situation feel the same way early on. Felt like at that point, I don't have a problem. You know, why do I need to get therapy or why do I need to study addiction? I'm not the one with the problem is Chase, Mm -hmm. but it requires a family solution. It really does. And when I say it requires a family solution, sure, there are people who get sober, who get into recovery, and their family is never part of that. But certainly the odds are much better, much better chance of a long-term recovery when the family plays their proper role in the process. In particular with addiction, it's such a hard thing because until you do the studying, until you learn more, Mm. you don't realize how much it impacts the brain itself, Mm -hmm. how it impacts Mm -hmm. thinking, because we tend to think like your wife was thinking. It's just common decency to let somebody know where you're going to be, you know, because then we don't worry and Mm -hmm. just want to know. So like that's common decency. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. meanwhile, there is some other way of thinking going on in his mind. He might not even have been thinking about the impact. He might 
might not have been thinking about anything because there might have been things within his system that limited thinking. Mm -hmm. And the more we learn about this, the more we can learn how to engage it. But what makes it so hard is it's not like you can figure out how to fix it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You're just learning how to navigate it. And there are still going to be unknowns. There are still going to be risks. Sometimes the best thing to do can lead to a hard outcome. Yeah. And so you're learning how to walk in the space where fixing isn't the solution. That's right. You know. But walking in love, walking in understanding and walking wisely. And so y'all are doing this. You're starting to learn more. You're starting to figure this out. But then you've already mentioned there was this day that came where everything changed. Wow, that was tough. I've been doing a drug prevention speaking and impaired driving prevention speaking since 2016. And I've told his story thousands and thousands of times. I still, I have a hard time telling it and, uh, and not getting emotional, you know? So sometimes I get through it just fine. Other times I get a little emotional, but he had come to me. He'd been doing really well. He'd gotten a job. He was going to IOP, intensive outpatient care, like group therapy, two nights a week. He wanted to go. He wanted to get better. He was staying away from the people who had been a bad influence before. All of his family and good friends felt like, ah, this is the real chase. This is the old chase. This is the chase we know and love. You know, he's sober. But I felt this weight on my shoulders the whole time, like, I've got to keep him entertained, you know, to keep him out of trouble while I'm trying to do things too. And I've got my own life to live in. Man, that's a huge weight for parents to feel. And I know other parents out there who may hear this, who may be listening to this. I know they know exactly what I'm talking about. There's just no way to do it. You just can't do it. You know, finally, he came to me one day and said, dad, you know, I'm headed in a bad direction again, and I'm hanging around a rough crowd, and I know I need to get away from these people. I know I need to part ways with them because they're a bad influence on me, but I just don't have the strength to do it. And he said, the only thing I know to do is to move. He told me that he had taken a job transfer to Florida back to the area where he had been in treatment. Told me when he was planning to leave. I told him, my wife, and she made Chase promise to come by and have a meal this before leaving for Florida. Well, the day came that he was supposed to come by and he didn't show up. You know, we tried to call, tried to text, no response. It was getting later in the afternoon and we moved to the living room. Our youngest son was with us, Justin. He was in the eighth grade at the time. So we're all in the living room. We're kind of surfing through our phones and just kind of talking a little bit, watching a little TV, just hanging out. And I had a phone call from one of my friends and I didn't want to disturb Kim and Justin with my phone conversation. So I went outside. It was a nice day out, May 29th, 2014. And I'm standing out there in the front lawn talking to my friend when a police cruiser pulled up to the curb in front of our house. And I told my friend, I need to go. Apparently, Chase is in some kind of trouble. He'd never been in any trouble with the law before, but I knew he was headed in a bad direction. So I knew that there was potential there. And so I hung up with my friend and I go to meet the officer and we met right there in my driveway. You know, we kind of met halfway and There was a little bit of confusion initially because he thought he was at the home of one of the other kids that was in the car. There were three of them in the vehicle. We got all that straightened out, and he eventually said, Mr. Rogers, has been a bad wreck, and Chase died at the scene. Right where we just happened to be standing right there, I couldn't tell you how many times I was right there. I was throwing Chase passes, you know, throwing the baseball with him, and and I throw this pass as like just out of reach, just to watch him make diving catches and use athleticism. And, you know, you're kind of reliving that there in the moment. You're kind of having these flashbacks and there's 
a long pause after he told me he was dead because, you know, ultimately my mind just, I didn't want to hear that. Finally, I look at him and I say, he's dead. And he kind of dropped his head and he said, yes, sir. He said, is there anyone inside you'd like me to notify? I said, well, my wife and my, um, hmm, that's tough, man. My wife and my other son are in there right there in the living room, but that's my job. Let me do that. And, uh, I felt like that was my responsibility as a father and a, and a husband to be the one to break the news to them. I didn't want to do it. Right. So I go in, he asked me, he said, can I go in with you for support? And I said, sure. I go in first and he's coming in right behind me. And immediately to my right, there's my wife, Kim in the recliner, I made eye contact with her. And then Justin, our younger son's back in the corner on the sofa. And split second later, after I walked in the door, this officer comes in the door behind me. Uh, of course, I noticed that Kim, her facial expression changed to one of terror right away because she knew when she saw that officer come in the door, whatever it was, wasn't going to be good. And uh, I just had to come out and tell her, you know, honey, there's been a bad wreck and Chase is dead. And, and of course, we all cried for a long time. It took us a while to get settled down. Then we began to ask the officer questions about what happened. He didn't have a lot of answers that day. But he stuck around for a while and tried to answer questions best he could. And we heard a rumor that there had been a going away party the night before with all kinds of drugs and alcohol. I'm pretty sure that's accurate. And the rumor was that they felt hungover when they woke up the next morning. So they decided to go to the park and smoke some marijuana to help them cope with their nausea. This part was in the police report. So I know they did go to the park. They did smoke marijuana there in the park, and then they all got into Chase's car, and he let this girl, he had dated her at one point, let her get behind the wheel of his car. He got in the front passenger seat. Another young man got in the back seat right after they had all just smoked the marijuana, and then they drove just a mile or two and made a quick stop, grabbed a bite to eat, and headed right out onto I-40 in rush hour traffic. Only went a couple of miles, and she lost control of his car in a curve, struck a tree, Chase died at the scene. It took the firefighters and other emergency personnel. It took them almost an hour to get the three of them out of the vehicle. It was kind of wrapped around the tree. They transported the other two to the hospital right away with serious injuries, and they would recover over the next several weeks to the extent they could return home to continue their recovery there. But then this is a really terrible part of the story, but the young lady that had been driving Chase's car that day there was a fire that broke out in her apartment, and the fire chief said, based on his department's investigation, they believe that she poured gasoline all over the floor of her apartment, hmm. stood in the middle of it, and ignited it. Wow. And about 14 apartment units burned down. Fortunately, no one else was hurt. She died about 24 hours later in the hospital from her burns. Hmm. There were two suicide notes that were left. And now we're attending another funeral and we got to know her mother, really nice lady. And it just kind of just reopened those wounds again, you know, and mm, mm -hmm. there's so much more to that story. But that got me started down this path of doing the prevention speaking and eventually working with parents who have a child with a substance use disorder. Man, there's so much that's heavy in that. Mm. And there's something that I wrote down when we first started talking that that story really hits on. Mm. And it's this idea of 
it shouldn't have been this way. Yeah. I mean, this is threaded throughout your whole story, right? You did your best to raise your kids. Things seem to be going well. You know, you're going to church. You're, you're close. You're a present father. You know, they're in Boy Scouts, like all the things. And then suddenly there's this turn in high school. Mm-hmm. It shouldn't have been this way. Like we, we thought we were parenting right. But so you continue to try to, okay, let's do, you know, the military academy. Let's do this, that, and the other. Okay, he's into football. This is going to keep him busy. All that. And then he gets into college and then suddenly things take another turn. Well, I mean, it shouldn't have been this way. Mm-hmm. All right, well, he's home and I've learned how I'm not doing things the right way. So now I'm going to shift it up and let's get him into a recovery center. And he's starting to get better. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. oh, he's making the decision to go to a different location to get away from friends. Mm-hmm. Everything is in place. He's coming to do the goodbye breakfast. And then this happens. Mm-hmm. It shouldn't have been this way. And I feel like when we are thinking about these seasons of sitting and suffering, that's a theme that we might not always really sit with. Like we're sitting with it, but we don't sit with the reality that we're sitting mm-hmm. with. It. We are constantly ruminating on this idea of it shouldn't have been this way. If I had done it differently, or if someone had done it differently, or if that girl wasn't driving, or if... And so you've already touched on it a little bit in sharing that this experience has led you to a place where now you walk alongside other parents. But how have you navigated this heavy weight of it shouldn't have been this way, but knowing that God's calling you to keep moving forward and not live in regret? Hmm. I facilitate a peer support group for parents, and it's a volunteer position. It's a free peer support group. We meet one night a week. It's for parents that have addicted children. And when I say addicted children, that's usually teenagers and adults and even older adults. It's like he read my mind because I've told other people this, and I've thought this before, and, and he was saying the same thing. as He's like, you know, when you learn that pain is an opportunity— Anytime you're going through experiencing emotional pain, there's an opportunity for spiritual and personal growth in that. And you can reject it or you can embrace it. And I recommend embracing it because there's a lot of blessings that come out of that. You know, I would not have met some of the people that I've met had it not been, had I not chosen this path. And, um, these are these are tears of joy, mm. believe it or not. Mm. <laughs> I say that in that, am I happy that Chase is gone and that this happened? No, absolutely not. There's not a day that goes by that I don't miss him, but doing the type of work that I've been doing is healing. And I think it's healing because, yeah, I have to relive the story, but it forces me to reexamine it. It forces me to deal with that pain instead of just trying to push it aside and push it back and pretend that it doesn't exist Mm -hmm. and try to forget about it and move on. It forces me to say, you know, what is it that I can learn from this? How can I be a better person? How can this make me a better person? How can I grow? How can I make my walk with God better? It's the interactions I have with other people. I'll give you a couple of examples. My book, by the way, honestly, I go back and I read it now. And I think I mentioned earlier that sometimes I cringe (laughs) because I'm in a much different space than I was when I wrote the book. And I understand addiction a lot better. And I I was very judgmental at the time that I wrote it. And I'm in, like I said, a very different space now. But for some reason, it resonates with a lot of people and a lot of people who are recovered addicts. I've had people from around the world. I've made the Kindle version free for people to download. There was a lady from Scotland who downloaded that book and read it, and she had lost her son to a heroin addiction. And she reached out to me 
and I get emotional thinking about them. She reached out to me over Facebook Messenger. We struck up a friendship, and before it was over with, she and her husband flew here. Now, they had some other friends in the U.S. and in Canada, and they just decided to you know, visit some of their other friends and spend a little over a week, I think, on this trip. And they liked to travel, but they stayed with us for three days. And it was like I had known them my whole life. And we communicate back and forth frequently, and I hope that we can go visit them. That's on our to-do list, mm-hmm. to go visit them in the U.K. sometime. But a really, really neat couple. You know, there are people that I've met, and some of the relationships, they don't go that deep. It's just a conversation that I have with somebody after I give a talk that comes up to me, but I can tell that we've made a connection and that something that I've said has resonated with them. And it's not about me and what I'm saying. And I have to be careful to reel myself back in. And the best talks that I give are when I pray ahead of time and I ask God to like, okay, I'm just going to open my mouth and you put the words in there. And then the story is never going to change. The story is going to be basically the same, but there's always little ad libs or things that, you know, the way that I frame the story. And sometimes I've gotten so good at telling that story because I know it by heart that I don't have to think about telling the story. Mm -hmm. I'm making eye contact with people in the audience and I'm picking up on facial expressions and there's this body language going on. And and just like we're communicating without communicating verbally, Mm -hmm. that leads me to other thoughts that God is giving me that I know he's puts it on my heart that they need to hear. And I can tell when that lands, Mm -hmm. that's just awesome when that happens. And you know, it's like, okay, it wasn't me. That was God. Mm-hmm. Those type of moments happen, and it's just a real blessing when it does. Yeah. This idea that the worst thing can happen, and yet God can do something redemptive. God can do something beautiful. God could do abundantly more. It keeps on coming up in these stories of sitting and suffering. A thing happens that we never would have chosen. Mm. And then you fast forward to the later part of the story and you're able to look at it, like you said, with tears of joy Mm -hmm. while still feeling the pain of loss, Mm -hmm. while still knowing that you wish things could have been differently, but you've accepted that they weren't like you're carrying all of this. And it's like this tension. And I feel like part of that tension and part of being able to heal around this idea of it shouldn't have been this way is the element of forgiveness. And Mm -hmm. this came to my mind Mm -hmm. earlier when you were starting to talk about the young lady, Mm -hmm. but you also mentioned it in other ways. There's this element of you were really coming down on yourself. Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. was I not being the right kind of father? Was I not doing it this way? And you had to navigate that. You're navigating this element of forgiveness around Chase. Like, Mm -hmm. Chase, you should have known better. (laughs) Like, we raised you better than this. And we gave you opportunities. We tried to support you. And then this young lady, like, Uh, how do I forgive someone who took something Mm -hmm. irreplaceable from me? And so, you know, as you navigate this idea of getting past this idea of it shouldn't have been this way, what does forgiveness look like in all those fears? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That is really, really good. Probably one of the things that I struggled with a lot was forgiving the driver, forgiving her. The, The thing about it is, you know, in hindsight, now I can look back on it and go, well, really, Chase, he is the most responsible. He has the lion's share of the responsibility in this situation because he was the oldest. It was his car. They all smoked together and he let her get behind the wheel. She didn't even have a driver's license. You know, she was 18, but she had never bothered to go get one. She didn't think it was that important to get a driver's license, you know. But he let her get behind the wheel of his car, knowing full well that they were all impaired. 
But when you're in the midst of the grief, one of the first things that I told people close to me was like, I'm going to figure out a way to turn this into something good. And I'm going to forgive her. And it was not that easy. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, I went to the hospital to visit the kid who was in the back seat and paid him a visit. She was up one floor and I just couldn't bring myself to go up there to visit her. You know, she was kind of a little bit stubborn about it, like said some things on social media about how, you know, she didn't do anything wrong and, you know, she wasn't impaired at the time and just a few other things that just made it harder for me. You know, I'm at this place now, I'm at this point where I've moved on and I've forgiven myself and I've forgiven everybody else. So it doesn't do any good to go back to this place of guilt and all of that other than to look at it from the standpoint of what can I learn from that going forward and what kind of lessons can I impart to other people going forward. And one of those is that, man, there is some regret that I didn't reach out to her and try to let her know that, hey, look, I may not agree with your decisions. I may not agree with your assessment in this situation, but I forgive you and I love you and I wish you the best. And, you know, nothing would have made me happier than for the two of us to have been a team talking to other people about this, about addiction and about impaired driving versus, you know, having to tell the story the way I'm telling it now. But at that time, I just wasn't ready for that. And she wasn't either. And there's nothing I can do to undo that now, unfortunately. But yeah, it was a really tragic part of the story. It really is. Yeah. And the hard reality is, as we mature more and more, we learn sometimes there are just things that could have been that won't be. That's right. And when we're not yet mature enough to fully accept that, Mm -hmm. our response to that is to blame. Yeah. Like this person took this away from me or, well, I didn't do anything wrong. It's Mm -hmm. not my fault. The more we mature, we can begin to recognize even if someone does have fault, throwing it all on them doesn't solve anything. That's right. We start to see all these things, but the big thing is to be able to be at peace with loss. Yeah. Is to be able to be at peace with saying there could have been this different ministry there isn't. That's hard, right? but it's okay. And I feel like God is constantly giving us invitations that we are constantly rejecting. And it makes me think often of when Jesus is outside Jerusalem and he's basically saying, woe to you. <laughs> what could have been? Mm-hmm. What could have been for you mm-hmm. if you had just listened? Mm-hmm. He is wrestling with the same thing. He recognizes that if they would just listen, what they could experience, the full life they could have. But he also is accepting where things are because he knows that God is bigger, that God can still do abundantly more, that God can work even within our mess. And he was perfect, right? And still navigating this. How much more us who are imperfect. And so I just love what you're sharing because it's demonstrating this reality that part of all of this is learning how to take the next step forward. And basically, it's almost like a shifting of the question. Like you noted, instead of getting over-focused on what could have been, Mm -hmm. it's like you're turning your face from looking to the past and shifting to looking in the future and saying, but what can be? Mm -hmm. In light Mm -hmm. of this, I know what could have been, but what can be, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And so I love that. I love that. Well, let's say there's somebody listening Mm -hmm. who is in that place where maybe their child is navigating addiction. Their young adult child is navigating addiction. Their child has been lost to something like this and they're navigating loss. If you could talk to someone who is in a similar place of suffering that you had to navigate, what would you say to them now? If you're in that space of just really being angry like I was and you're grieving, everybody processes grief differently. 
you know, they say there are different stages you go through and it's usually not quite so clear cut as you see it presented, particularly for guys. At least it was this way for me is that I went through that anger stage for a while. You know, I would wrestle, I would wrestle at night, you know, and I would think about different things and pray and like, God, you know, come on, help me out here. I would just say, you know, allow yourself to grieve if you're going through something like that. Try to find healthy outlets for your anger. Really bridle your tongue or your fingers if you happen to be on social media, you know, because your words can really uplift people and make people feel loved and appreciated. And they can also really tear down people. And you know, the scripture verses that talk about that. It takes a lot of self-control in those situations. And that's the fruit of the spirit, right? That's one of them. Self-control is true with anger. Really, anger is a big one. And I was talking to another parent about this recently. who was telling me that they have some anger control issues. I said, really, you know, when you lose control of your anger, it's a weakness. You know, it's not a strength. I think, you know, when you're in that moment, sometimes you feel like, oh, I'm overpowering this other person or, you know, I'm letting them know how I feel. Correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I think there's a scripture verse that talks about anger and sin not. Mm-hmm. You know, there were times when Jesus was angry, mm-hmm. but when you're losing control, so you can be angry and have justified anger. And it's okay to express that anger as long as it's expressed in healthy ways. And when you're expressing it in ways that tear other people down, or you're getting into a fit of rage mm-hmm. <laughs> and you're yelling and you're, like I said, tearing people down or you're throwing things or tearing things up, you know, in a fit of rage, that's not self-control. That's not controlled anger. And so whatever works for you in terms of, I mean, when I say that, I mean, obviously you need the connection with God, but God works differently with different people in terms of some people may just need to pray. For me, I grew up in the country and I love the outdoors and I feel it peace when I'm in the outdoors and appreciating God's creation. And so if I can get away and get to a quiet place and kind of get away from those things that are making me angry for a little while, I really feel close to God in that environment. And that helps me. That may not work for everybody, but do have to separate yourself from the situation a little bit. And just remember that self-control comes from the Holy Spirit living in you. And when you lack that self-control, that's not him. So you have to go back to that place of controlling those emotions. Well, you already noted that there's so much more to the story. So if somebody wanted to hear more of the story, if they wanted to connect with you, what's the best way to do that? So if they want to hear more of the story, they can go read my book. It's A Life Half Lived, A True Story of Love, Addiction, Tragedy, and Hope. It's on Amazon. They can download it for free if they want to, or they can go get the paperback. I wrote another book. It's not nearly as popular, (laughs) but I didn't promote it as much either. But it's called Taking the Fight to the Enemy. And it is a book about spiritual warfare. And it's about how to do spiritual combat, you know, because we are at war. We're at war right now in this country and in the world. And when I say that, I really mean in the sense of spiritual warfare on a level that I've never seen it before. Because of the type of work that I do, I have to attend funerals of 20-something-year-olds who died from a fentanyl overdose. Mm -hmm. The fentanyl is everywhere. Mm -hmm. You know, that's just one example, but there's so many cultural things and so many attacks on our belief system as Christians. 
Anyway, I just think that that would be a really good book for people to read. And part of it is in the beginning, particularly, is about my struggle with that situation, that anger going through Chase's loss. I have a website that is thefamilyrecoverycoach.com. They can get some information there, or if their parent's struggling with a child with an addiction, they can go to Facebook and look up my group. The Facebook group is Parenting Addicted Children. Those are several ways. I've got other social media out there, and they can just Google me. And I would encourage people that if they have an issue, to reach out to me if they have an issue, particularly with a child who's addicted to drugs or alcohol, because I'll give them a free hour. I really want to help people. So I'll give them that free hour of pointing them towards the right resources and trying to problem solve and giving them the right information from somebody who's walked in their shoes. And then, you know, where they go from there, that's up to them. But man, it would be a good start towards heading in the right direction. Yeah, that's good. And as we close out, is there anything that God's been putting in your heart that you feel like you should share? Mm, man, <laughs> there are several things. I speak to people at a victim's impact panel. Now, I don't like to think of myself as a victim. <laughs> I like to think of myself as a victor because through the power of the Holy Spirit and God working in my life, I can overcome situations. It's a mindset thing for me. But I talk to them because a lot of those people, not all of them, but a good portion of them are struggling with an addiction issue. And so I always talk to them about, look, you know, you were created in God's image and you were put here for a purpose. And man, don't blow it doing this kind of stuff. I love you and God loves you. And, you know, he can give you the strength to make good choices, to make better choices in life. And he can make your life a living testimony and, and give you fulfillment and joy in life in walking with him and getting to know him. This notion of what should and shouldn't happen can make it really hard for us to trust God in the midst of suffering. And we're not alone in this. Even the psalmist struggle with this. Take the psalmist's thoughts in Psalm 73, and this is the Good News translation. God is indeed good to Israel, to those who have pure hearts. But I had nearly lost confidence. My faith was almost gone because I was jealous of the proud when I saw that things go well for the wicked. They do not suffer pain. They are strong and healthy. They do not suffer as other people do. They do not have the troubles that others have. The psalmist found himself in this place where he was seeing what should and shouldn't have happened. It shouldn't have been that those who were doing wrong had everything going right for them. And meanwhile for him, as he says in verse 13, Is it for nothing then that I have kept myself pure and have not committed sin? Oh God, you have made me suffer all day long. Every morning you have punished me. In other words, God, it shouldn't have been this way. They have not been living a life to honor you and yet things are going well. And meanwhile, I've committed my life to serving you and all you're doing is punishing me. I'm suffering all day. It shouldn't be this way. And the psalmist is wrestling with this. He wants to speak these things out, but he says in verse 15, If I had said such things, I would not be acting as one of your people. I tried to think this problem through, but it was too difficult for me. 
What changes, though, is the last part of that sentence. I tried to think this problem through, but it was too difficult for me until I went into your temple. When the psalmist was just living within his own mind, his own understanding, and his own logic, it made sense to him that what was happening was unjust. The wicked shouldn't be prospering, and the righteous should not be suffering. But when he went into the temple, when he went into God's presence, when he sought God in the midst of his suffering, he came to see things in a way that his mind hadn't comprehended earlier. And it brings him to this place, starting at verse 21. When my thoughts were bitter and my feelings were hurt, I was as stupid as an animal. I did not understand you. Yet, I always stay close to you, and you hold me by the hand. You guide me with your instruction, and at the end you will receive me with honor. What else do I have in heaven but you? Since I have you, what else could I want on earth? My mind and my body may grow weak, but God is my strength. He is all I ever need. The psalmist comes to this realization that there is a lot that he didn't understand about life, and there is even more that he didn't understand about God. Yet he had this resolve in the midst of his suffering to stay close to God. And what he came to discover is that God held him by the hand, that God guided him, and that God would receive him. He was longing for his own understanding of justice. He was longing for things to go a certain way. He was longing for what he felt he deserved and to be protected from what he didn't. But what he discovered in God's presence is that he only needed God. All of those things meant nothing and God meant everything. What else do I have in heaven but you? Since I have you, what else could I want on earth? My mind and my body may grow weak, but God is my strength. He is all I ever need. When you've had those moments where you've said it shouldn't have been this way, you were probably right. On a human level, it probably shouldn't have been that way. And that is one of the hard things that we wrestle with as broken people in a broken world. There are wrongs committed. There is injustice. There are lost opportunities. But that doesn't change that there is a God who loves us, a God who is present and active. And as the psalmist noted, he is all we need. Our best ideas, our best plans, our best case scenarios all fall short of the abundantly more that God is doing. So when you find yourself saying it shouldn't have been this way, follow it with yes, and yet God is still God. God is still good. And he is with me in the midst. Maybe it shouldn't have been this way, but what could it become if I continue to trust and follow God? We can exhaust ourselves looking back, but if we look forward, we may find that God is already expressing his love and power in the midst of our suffering. And that's something we don't want to miss. Don't get lost in perpetually looking back. Choose to face and step forward towards the God who loves you deeply. And then ask yourself, where did you see God? Have you ever wanted to read Revelation but haven't known where to start? Or have you been afraid to read Revelation because of all the ways you've seen it misused? Or maybe you haven't even wanted to touch Revelation but feel like maybe you should since it's part of the Bible? Well, if you're in any of these positions or any other ones, I've got a resource for you. It's called A Journey Through Revelation for the Person Who Doesn't Want to Read Revelation. And here's the thing. The hope for this resource is that it makes the exploration of who God is and what revelation can mean for you accessible, whatever you believe. And this will not be your normal revelation study. 
It's not going to dive into the historic representations of the imagery or expertly decipher the prophecies. The goal of this is not to tell you what revelation means. It's to explore what it can mean for you. Now, this thing is available for you right now in a few forms. One, you could go to www.wheredidyouseegod.com revelation, and you can find a PDF for free, which you can read on your phone, on your device, or print out. But if you like something that's a little nicer looking, it is also available through Amazon on Kindle and in paperback form. And I prefer paperback, whether you print it or you get the one on Amazon, because this gives you a place to write some things out because you're going to want a place to write things out. Because I really do believe that God wants to speak to you through Revelation, whatever you feel about Revelation, whatever your experience and whatever you think about God. So if you're interested, get it for free, get it for a very, very, very low price. This is not about making money, but about us together exploring how we can see God in the midst of such a difficult and controversial book. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Where Did You See God podcast. And I would love for your stories to be a part of it as well. So there are a number of ways that you can do that. You can check out our Facebook page at Where Did You See God podcast. You can go to anchor.fm slash Where Did You See God, or you can leave a brief voice message at 804-372-3836. I would love to hear your stories. And if the stories you've heard have encouraged you, uh, think of someone else who could be encouraged as well and share it with them. The music you've been listening to is You'll Walk, You'll Run by Urban Doxology. They are a solid group and you will love listening to the rest of the music. So check them out. And as always, as you go through your day, ask yourself, where did you see God? <laughs>